Thanks so much, Noah. Um, good afternoon, everyone. I, I have the privilege of kind of getting us kicked off today. Um, thank you all so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, I know that in this webinar format, the audience members can't see each other and actually we can't see the audience, but we were thrilled um, that so many people um, have RSVP'd and logged in to join us for today's program. Uh, for those of you I haven't met, my name is Lavinia Weisel. I'm a litigator at Mintz in Boston, and together with Ashley Pelto, I serve as co-chair of the Human Trafficking Subcommittee of the BBA's Delivery of Legal Services Steering Committee. Um, in my time at Mintz, I've had the opportunity to represent survivors of human trafficking on a pro bono basis in pursuing various forms of criminal record relief, and I was also involved in the drafting and advocacy for the Human Trafficking Vacature Law that took effect in Massachusetts in 2018. The Human Trafficking Subcommittee um, of the Delivery of Legal Services Steering Committee was founded to serve really as a connection point for members of the bar who are interested in these issues or whose work addresses human trafficking, whether in the context of direct legal services, pro bono representation, criminal enforcement, or prosecution and legislative advocacy. Um, we meet quarterly and we aim to host one to two programs like this every year. Um, we're always happy to welcome new members um, and Ashley and I will share our contact information at the end of the program. Um, so please feel free to reach out to us if you would like to get involved in the subcommittee or to learn more about the work that we do. Um, and in terms of our program today, our, our plan is that Ashley will introduce our speakers who will engage in kind of a fireside chat style presentation for about 45 minutes or an hour, and we'll then open up for audience questions. Um, because this is webinar style and we can't see the audience, we'd ask that you share your questions using the Q&A function, and Ashley or I will read them out loud to the speakers. Um, the event is being recorded today, um, so the questions will be recorded as we read them. Uh, additionally, I wanted to acknowledge two members of the subcommittee who are in the audience today and who will join us at the end for the Q&A portion. Um, that's Beth Keeley and Amy Burkhart. Um, Beth is Chief of the Human Trafficking Division of the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, and Amy is an attorney at Jones Day and former Chief of the Cybercrime Unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. She also served as a co-director of the U.S. Attorney's Civil Rights Enforcement Team, a cross-office team of prosecutors working on criminal civil rights matters, including sex and labor trafficking. Um, also, we wanted to um, acknowledge that today's program may contain some difficult content. Um, and to the extent that anyone in the audience feels impacted by today's program, the National Human Trafficking Hotline is a great resource and a safe space. Um, and we'll share that number in the chat um, now and again at the end of the program. And with that, I you know, thank you again so much to all of you who've taken the time to join us today. And I wanted to also extend a special thanks to the BBA and the Boston Bar Foundation and to the Delivery of Legal Services Steering Committee for their strong support of this program and of the subcommittee. And uh, with that, I'll turn things over to Ashley to introduce herself and introduce our speakers. Thank you, Lavinia. Uh, so yes, I'm Ashley Pelto, co-chair of the Human Trafficking Subcommittee and Equal Justice Works Fellow at Dove in Quincy, Massachusetts. Uh, my work is centered around you know, working with survivors of trafficking related to immigration and criminal record relief. So yeah, I'd like to introduce uh, the two people who will be having this important conversation today, Jose Alfaro and Julie Dahlstrom. 
Julie is a clinical associate professor at the Boston University Law School and director of the BU Law Immigrant Rights and Human Trafficking Program. She founded the Human Trafficking Clinic in 2012, where her students represent survivors of trafficking and engage in policy related um, to efforts to promote systemic reform. She was a member of the Governor's Human Trafficking Task Force when legislation was passed in the state in 2011. And she teaches and writes in the areas of human trafficking, immigrant rights, and gender-based violence. Julie will be facilitating our conversation today and Jose will be sharing his expertise with us. Jose is a lived experience expert on domestic child sex trafficking. He's also a public speaker, author, advocate, and activist. He's worked with several anti-human trafficking organizations around the globe to spread awareness on trafficking, specifically within the LGBTQ community. He's currently working on a memoir depicting his own personal experiences with trafficking. He's been featured in several publications, including a recent op-ed in the Boston Globe, and has worked with law enforcement agencies such as DHS and DOJ. His work includes public speaking and giving lectures, sharing his story and statistics of human trafficking. And with that, um, I'll stop screen sharing and I'll let Julie get us started with our conversation. Excellent. I, I just want to follow that up by thanking again the Human Trafficking Subcommittee and especially Lavinia Weisel and Ashley Pelto, who have really been um, the, the brains behind this endeavor, um, as well as Jose Alfaro, who um, I'm just privileged to stand in a Zoom room alongside. I also just wanted to highlight um, the work of the BBA Subcommittee which has really been bringing to the forefront much needed conversations about both the promise and the limitations of human trafficking law and really excited to, to kick off this important conversation. So before I start, I, I wanted to, to begin by sharing what a pleasure it is again to appear alongside Jose in this forum. I came to, to know Jose at a bit of a distance. So I read about the conviction of uh, Jason Daniel Gandhi, the defendant whom he will speak a, a little about today and an impressive civil judgment of $1.4 million. I also read his poignant op-ed in the, in the Boston Globe, which Ashley mentioned, entitled, I'm a survivor of sex trafficking and invisible no more. In that op-ed, he writes compellingly about how despite a robust legal landscape of criminal and civil laws, he and others face, face and faced profound challenges, getting the remedies actually promised under state and federal law. And he also writes really powerfully about how law enforcement, the press and others still paint the picture of an iconic victim and how this and other factors continue to shape imperfect enforcement efforts. So I'm just such a fan of Jose. It's been a pleasure to get to know him through this process and, and really excited to kick off this important conversation. So to start things off, I, I thought I would just ask you, Jose, if you could share with the audience a little bit of background about how you experienced trafficking and how you were able to get free or, or leave that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Before I get started, I, I want to thank all of you. It's been a pleasure to work with every single one of you. You've really made this an incredible experience. Um, but as far as a little bit of background goes, I always think that this part is important because you kind of have to understand how it happened, but also what a client or a survivor might be going through um, while they're participating and why. Um, so my story begins back in 2007. Um, I was an honor roll student. I was preparing for college, had many dreams. 
I grew up in a small town in Southern Texas. Um, so it was really tough um, in terms of my sexuality. Um, it was considered an abomination. So for a long time, I felt like I couldn't come forward and I couldn't share who I was. Um, but when I did, um, this is when my parents kicked me out of the home and this was all because of my sexuality. So this is basically how I became vulnerable to Jason Gandy. Um, I messaged Gandy through a gay chat site and he basically made me a ton of promises and painted this picture of a life of luxury basically and how easy my life would be if I went with him. And a lot of times this is known as the grooming process. So after a while, he offered me a job to work in his massage business. He told me that one day I'm gonna wanna live a life on my own and support myself. And that was exactly all that I ever wanted. So he knew exactly what to say to me um, to make me do exactly what he wanted me to do. During this time, before we began doing the massages, he informed me that I could not share the news with anyone that we were doing this because not it wasn't that he would get in trouble, but that I would get in trouble. And so for a long time, this silenced me. Um, I would say for over a decade, I did not share with many people what had happened. And so Gandhi did end up sex trafficking me through his massage business. Um, and after escaping, I basically had to learn how to navigate in the world alone. And during this time, I was in survival mode and I never really understood the effects of my traumas, but I, I now know that I was dealing with extreme PTSD, anxiety, and depression. Um, but I also knew at that time that I just was no longer the same person that I had been before. Thank you, Jose, for sharing that. I, I wanna um, also follow up. As you know, language is incredibly important in this space, especially in the anti-trafficking space. And um, you know, there, there has been some critique around terms like victim that can define people in a one-dimensional way. And so I wanted to ask you what terms or terms you prefer to use um, to identify your experience and, and why, are, why are these terms or language more generally important? I love this question because it is very, very important. And I identify as a lived experience expert on domestic child sex trafficking. And I will mention that at the beginning of this case, no one really asked me if it was okay to call me a survivor. And to be honest with you, it really made me feel very uncomfortable because I didn't identify as a survivor. Better yet, I didn't really understand what human trafficking meant and how I was, quote unquote, a victim of human trafficking. And so a lot of these terms that were thrown at me, I didn't really identify or it didn't sit well with me. And so I, as I continued to speak out and work within the movement, I kind of learned or realized that every time someone called me a survivor, and if I identified as a survivor, it put me in a box. And within this box, I was no longer able to be Jose. And so all I could ever be was a survivor of human trafficking. And I'm so much more than that. And so now I like to go by a lived experience expert because I'm an expert on my experience, but that doesn't make me who I am. So to label me as a survivor, it, it still doesn't really sit 
you know, well with me. So a lot of times I tell um, anyone that's working with, you know, lived experience experts to ask them, how would you like to be identified or should I just call you by your name? Um, because after all, we, we have a name for a reason. Thanks, Jose, and thanks for just reminding us the importance of asking that question at the beginning of any representation or engagement and, and the power of just having a name, right, and engaging. So I wanted to move to, um, you're here today, you're talking with us publicly about your experience despite some of the challenges. So, so tell us a little bit about what motivates you to speak publicly about your experiences now. Um, like I mentioned, I went over a decade um, trying to understand how I went from someone with goals and ambitions to living a life of drugs and with zero motivation. And so I never identified as someone who had been trafficked and I blamed myself for everything that happened to me. So the biggest reason, not the only reason, but the biggest reason why I speak out is I, I just think it's important for others to identify through my story so that they don't have to go a decade um, living this life alone without getting the help that they need. And I wish that I had gotten help much sooner because I would have burned a lot less bridges had that had been the case. And I probably would have gotten my life started a long time ago. It's really important and it highlights also the, the value of seeing survivors speaking in terms of motivating others to step forward. So thank you for that. Um, you talked a little bit about the trafficking experience and about Gandhi. And my understanding is that you became later involved in the criminal prosecution. Um, not, not all individuals decide to get involved in the criminal prosecution. Um, so I wanted to hear a little bit more if you're, you're willing to share, how did that come about? Um, how did you decide to move forward in that way? Yeah, so Gandhi was arrested in 2012 and um, he was attempt, well, actually he did make it across um, the border and he was taking a 15 year old boy to London. Um, in 2014, I had a friend come and visit me from Houston, Texas and he said, Jose, I know what happened to you when you were a teenager. And I'm like, how do you know this? Like, it just wasn't like I had shared with many people at this time. And he said, it doesn't work. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. And he shows me an article. And within this media release, um, it shared how, uh, about Gandhi's arrest. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom of it, it said, if you have any other information, or if you are a witness, um, to please come forward and contact the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And because of the silencing that had happened very early on with Gandhi, I was terrified. And I remember I cried and I sat with this information for basically the entire day. And I texted the hotline at 3 a.m. in the morning. And I just remember like crying and bawling my eyes out and like praying that like I wasn't gonna go to prison um, for sharing this information. I was terrified. And then I quickly got a message back and they informed me that there's no way that I would get in trouble for sharing because I was a minor. Um, and then quickly I got in contact with Homeland Security. Homeland Security then in person connected me to the US attorneys that were working on this case. Um, but it was something that I don't think I was ready for, excited about or anything along those terms. I was, I was literally terrified. It, it, it's it's a, an experience I feel like that's not that uncommon and, and I'm curious 
you know, you described how you were terrified. Um, I assume later on you did meet with with prosecutors and, and walked into that room with them. Could you tell us a little bit about what those first interactions felt like with either with law enforcement or the U.S. Attorney's Office? Um, so I really had no clue what was going to happen or what was happening. Um, and so I met with Homeland Security in the office here in Boston. And we did like a Zoom call, basically. I don't think Zoom existed at that time, but we did some like a video call um, with the US attorneys. And I just remember feeling extremely intimidated. Um, and I, I remember feeling like I wish that I had said something a lot sooner, that I had shared with law enforcement what had happened to me. And it was the fact that there were other victims that really helped me push through to continue to want to participate um, and testify. Um, I think that removing myself from the situation and thinking about other people really pushed me to be transparent, 100% honest, and to keep pushing through. Um, but it was, again, it was tough. It was really, really tough. Well, as you know, the criminal process can be quite lengthy. And sometimes people learn more about that process as, as the process unfolds. So I'm curious if there are things that you wish you had known earlier in the process or you wish that someone had told you about that process. Um, first thing is when we watch movies about trials, you think that at most it lasts a couple of months. Um, this all started in 2012, and we didn't testify until 2018. I wish I had known how long this process can take, um, because there, were, there was a long period where I was still dealing with my daily life, you know, my job, my relationships, things along those lines. But then you're adding another factor to this, and I'm reliving all of these traumatizing experiences and it's going on for over six years. And so it became very heavy. And there were many moments where I'm like, I don't wanna do this anymore, I wanna give up. And thank God I didn't um, with the help of many of the attorneys who were reaching out to me. And I even started ignoring the phone calls and the emails. And so they started sending me mail, like in the mail, just updating me on how the trial was going. and. I'm so thankful for that because it can, it kind of pushed me a little bit to continue to stay involved. Um, another thing that I wished was that I had asked a ton of questions. Um, I think that I felt like I was a burden and I was afraid to ask questions. And I also felt like I, maybe I would come off incompetent and I didn't want to come off that way. And so I found myself Googling a lot of the terms that the attorneys were using or even the titles of like a U.S. attorney or, um, the, you know, just all the different terms in the legal system. It was just really, really tough. And then I, I also wish that someone really pushed me to get the help that I needed early on. Because like I said, um, reliving this traumatic experience over and over and over again, it really put me in a really hard place. And I think that it would have been easier for me had I had been in contact with a therapist of some sort just to talk about what I was going through. 
Well, you're highlighting too, it's how incredibly important it is for, for lawyers who have tremendous privilege and power in that space to create a space for those conversations around mental health, um, to allow for questions and even to break concepts down in, in more bite-sized meaningful um, ways. So, so thank you for, for that. Um, it also is really interesting to hear you talk a little bit about the challenges in the process because you know I think we often focus on the challenges at trial and the re-traumatization re that can happen at that stage, but it's helpful to remember that all along this long process, um, it can be incredibly, incredibly challenging. Um, I'm curious, uh, the case did go to trial, you mentioned. Could you tell us a little bit more about, about that experience for you? Yes, so this was a trial by jury. And I mentioned that because it is terrifying <laughs> um, to have so many people staring at you and knowing that these people are ultimately, in a, in a sense, judging you. Um, and they're going to determine whether this guy or whether I'm telling the truth or not, basically. And so that's very, very intimidating, whether you are telling the truth or not. Um, but through this, through the process, um, I do feel, and I, I wanna start by saying that Sherry Zach and every attorney that worked on this case, they did an incredible, incredible job. I cannot imagine how hard it was to try to gather all of this information um, for a trial, and I'm sure it's a ton of, I mean, my own story in itself to share is a lot of information for people to grasp. So for these attorneys to really hone in on the important parts of this um, for the trial, I think it was just truly incredible. And so what I do is I kind of just pick different areas um, where we could see improvement. And so I don't want anyone to think that I'm speaking poorly of these attorneys because they work very, very hard. Um, but through this process, I do feel as though we could have had a little bit more preparation. I wish that we had really rehearsed the questions that were going to be asked because when I was up to testify, I, I felt as though almost I just went blank and I knew nothing about myself. And so there's one thing that I've read that RIQ drops um, when we are speaking in public or when we're nervous. And so I really just felt my IQ really dropped that day. <laughs> like I felt like I could barely, you know, answer to what my name was. I was so nervous. I was extremely anxious. I remember my legs were shaking un uncontrollably. There was a, a great tip that I had been given and it was focus on a spot in the room and don't look anywhere else. And so I looked at the floor basically, and that really, really helped. Um, another thing that I wish had happened was I wish that we had done a walkthrough um, of the courtroom. Um, I think that a lot of attorneys assume that most people know what's expected and what to do. I had no clue. And so when I walked up um, to testify, I didn't know if I should stand, if I should sit, if I raise my right hand, if I right, raise my left hand. And then I was like, do I say I do? Do I say yes? You know, there were a lot of questions that I had. And I wish that we just had a little bit more, um, a little bit more prep um, because like I said, I was, I was extremely nervous. And I even thought about backing out the very last minute right before I was going up to testify because I was so, so nervous. Um, but yes, oh, one thing that I wanna mention is a lot of people ask me, what was it like seeing Gandhi? Mm -hmm. and 
I think this is an interesting question because I think it's different for any anyone who testifies against their perpetrator. Um, Gandhi and I did not have an emotional relationship. And so when I saw him, it, it meant nothing to me and it didn't bother me. What did bother me and what really got me emotional was when they put a picture up of me when I was 16 years old. And it was a moment where I had to face the boy that I had been before all of this happened. But not only that, everyone else is looking at this boy. And so I, it, it was hard to face that person and see who that person used to be, the honest, bubbly and driven person. And then it was kind of like, how did I go from that? And then now I'm here testifying in a trial. It almost felt like time just flew by. Um, so I think that was probably a really, really hard moment for me. Thanks for, thanks for sharing, Jose. I, you know, you also have highlighted a little bit about how you know, we know a little bit about um, trauma and this idea that sometimes these experiences with the trial can actually be quite uh, re-traumatizing. And one way through that is for attorneys or other people to actually share um, what someone can expect from that experience, whether that's questions, what it looks like. And there have been studies about how that actually reduces the traumatization in trial and at other stages. So, um, so thanks for sharing for sharing that. Um, I'm curious, you know, there, there was a, um, a verdict and there was a guilty verdict that uh, that occurred. Um, can you just share with us what it felt like? Um, you know, it, sometimes we think that there's a successful outcome and there's a particular way of feeling about that. So, so how did it feel to um, to learn about that verdict and and um, where were you when you learned about that verdict? Yes. So, um, I was actually on my way back to the airport. Um, when we finally heard the verdict. And I have to say initially, no, I'm sorry. I was on my way to the airport when I heard the sentencing. Um, the verdict, I was actually in a room um, with the other survivors and Sherry. And initially I was disappointed. Mm -hmm. And I think the whole room was disappointed um, when we heard 30 years and not life. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a really, disappointing moment, but then Sherry really stood up and she said, you know what, this is a life sentence. And she said, think about his age, think about 30 years, that's a long time. And I think once she mentioned that, we all kind of started to really think about it. And we were like, it started to settle. And I think we all began to feel like there was a big win here. Um, I do want to mention how hard Sherry worked. And there was not a moment where Sherry did not defend us. I think through the entire process, through and through, she made us feel like she had our back and she truly, truly defended each and every one of us anytime there was an attack on our testimony. That's really moving. Can you tell us a little bit about Sherry, just what her role was in the case and, um, and how that connected to, um, to this moment? Absolutely. So she was the attorney. Um, let's see, the, the attorney working for the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, and working with Sherry, Sherry is truly like, she's tough. You know what I mean? Like very, very tough. And you know that. And she's very like to the point. 
like, let's get to the point. Let's make it happen. And at first I was kind of like, she could be a little nicer to me or she could be a little nicer to this person. But when you see her in action and doing what you can tell she loves um, being an attorney and once you see her go to bat for you, you're just like, this is the most perfect person that could be defending us. And I would have had it no other way because she did such an incredible job doing so. Thanks for sharing that. It also just highlights the impact that one attorney can have on a case and building building connection. Um, so tell us a little bit about the criminal case now. Is it over for you? What remains ongoing? Yes, um, this, this can be tough sometimes um, because it is still ongoing. Um, and we went through the restitution process and now we're going through a remission process. And for many who don't know, the remission process is basically a second chance to claim more money. And this money is basically to help you move forward with your life. And so it has now been over three years since we testified. And I have to say, if that money is to help us move forward, we haven't really had the opportunity to fully move forward with our lives because we haven't recovered any of the money. Um, and I, I hope that that's happening soon, um, but I will mention that very early on, there were many mistakes that had been made, which has basically elongated this process. And I think that it's, it's very troubling for a lot of the survivors um, because they are trying to go to school, pay their bills, but also dealing with a lot of the aftermath of the traumas that they've experienced, it's not easy. And I can tell you myself, I went many, many years in my bed, depressed, PTSD, anxiety. I mean, I had a panic attack for, for two, two weeks where I couldn't work, I couldn't do anything. So then you have to think about the bills that I have to pay. You have to think about my relationships, my friendships, everything that was just kind of coming to an end, it felt like, and I had no control over it. And so I, I really think that it's important that people know that it's never really over until that client receives the money that they deserve in this case, because a piece of paper, sure, it's, it's validating and it helps, but nothing more is gonna help than the money that they need so that they can do the things to move forward and, and accomplish the things that they need to accomplish in life. And you're highlighting so poignantly, you know, under, under federal law, restitution is mandatory in these cases, right? And yet we know that, that often people are unable to access restitution um, or even if restitution is ordered, it, it may be an uphill battle in terms of, of getting the actual money that, that you deserve. So I'm, I'm sorry that you experienced that and I appreciate you sharing openly about those, those challenges. Um, one of the other avenues, as you know, for um, sort of compensation or damages is a civil case and, and there are avenues for, um, for a civil remedy, both under our state and, and under federal law. So I wanted to ask to move a little bit um, to that. And, and, and my understanding is that you did pursue a civil case against Gandhi. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Absolutely. So back in 2014, so this was about the same time that I came in contact um, with the criminal attorneys. Um, after coming forward, I had an attorney contact me and asked me if I had ever thought about pursuing a, a civil suit. 
And I have to be honest, I did not know what that meant. And I said, I don't know what that means, but it sounds expensive. And she started laughing and she said, no, hopefully it would be pro bono. And I said, well, I don't know what that means either. <laughs> and so she explained everything and what it meant. Um, but that is basically how I began thinking about pursuing a civil suit. So I started collecting, you know, evidence and, and information receipts um, for the restitution process, which at the time I didn't know that's what they were for. And I'm sure she told me, I just didn't know what it meant. Um, but yeah, that's basically how I got involved in the civil, civil case. And can you tell us a little bit about um, your experience, what it was like when you began starting, you had lawyers in this process, which is, is a, a really, um, can be a challenging thing to find representation. But when you started to interact with them, um, what was that like learning about what the civil litigation process would look like and perhaps some of the challenges too? I, I do wanna mention that the civil case was something that I really wasn't interested in initially. Um, I, but I did remember how precious money was to Gandhi. And after all, he was willing to traffic several teenagers all for money. And so this was just another way for me and the others to seek justice. Um, but the civil process was a very, very long, long process as well. Um, cause it all began, um, very early on in 2014, just like the criminal case for myself. Um, but I started to give up and I really truly thought that I was never gonna have results. Um, and towards the end, before the statute of limitations was up, I basically almost said, I don't wanna do this anymore. Um, so the initial attorney helping me said that she could no longer take on my case, um, but she was going to begin searching for other attorneys who would be willing to do it pro bono, but she said that she wasn't sure that that was gonna be the case and that I would eventually probably have to pay um, a portion of the money. And so basically what I told her was because I felt that I wanted to give up and because it had been so long that I would appreciate it if she continued to search and if she didn't find anyone to do it pro bono, then we give up. And if she did even better and Thank goodness that Fish and Richardson really stepped up and said that they would take on my case pro bono. And which I later learned that um, Martina Vandenberg and the Human Trafficking Legal Center was that bridge and that connection to Fish and Richardson, which is really cool to find out all of these angels and resources that are out there um, that I didn't even know about at the time. So it's really cool. It's, it's amazing to have all of these different wonderful players um, involved in the case. Martina Vandenberg, who is a, a tremendous expert in the field and also Fish and Richardson. Um, and I'm, I'm sure this has also happened for a reason. Um, so thanks for calling them out. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, um, to the extent you'd like to talk about the civil litigation process and any of the challenges, but also um, did it result in a trial as well? And um, you know, what if any of the were, what if any challenges were there at trial? Absolutely. So this time around, it was much easier. After testifying in the criminal trial in front of a jury, that was tough and that was really, really scary. This time in the civil case, it was just myself, my attorney, 
Gandhi's attorney and the judge. So it was a very small room. Um, I felt it was a little more intimate. I could really, really answer the questions in a way where I was just sharing my story. So it felt very authentic. It felt free. I didn't feel like I had to be like I had to answer the questions directly and share no more. It was very, very, it was much easier this time around. Um, and so it was quick, simple, and we got it done. And then we got the verdict very shortly after. And if I recall, the case resulted in a really, really sizable judgment. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about what it was like when the judgment was entered um, and perhaps what, what it's been like since then. And sorry, yes, you're right. It was a, the judgment that we received shortly after. Um, <laughs> but to be, <laughs> to be honest with you, I, I really could not believe, first of all, that we went in with such a large number of 450K. And mind you, as most of you know, this isn't a number that I came up with because there's no way that I could formulate a number like that. Um, but then when I heard the amount had almost tripled, I was shocked. And also my attorneys were shocked. They're like, we did not think that this was gonna happen. Um, but when I finally heard that, um, I finally felt seen, I felt heard, I felt understood. Um, but I also felt like this wasn't just a win for myself. This was a win for every Brown, gay, Latino boy who ever felt unseen or misunderstood. And so it was really, really, truly an incredible feeling. Mind you, I'm back in Texas, a place where I constantly felt like I couldn't be myself. And here I am testifying in front of a judge in Texas. And I'm thinking like, he's not going to be on my side. He's not going to help me. And I, it was way more than what I could have ever asked for. So it was pretty incredible. It was a really great feeling. As a, as a as a Texas native as well, I could just say it is incredible that you were, you were able to do that um, and to have <laughs> such a success in the case. Um, so tell us a little bit about the civil case. Is it over for you? Um, if if not, why not? So the case is not quite over. Um, again, we still have yet to collect any money towards the judgment. There is money there to collect. Um, Obviously, it's probably not even going to be close to 1.43 million. That would be amazing. Um, but I don't want to go too far in detail because I don't want to disappoint anyone or make them feel as though that they're not doing their job correctly. Um, but I do know that this process is a very long process. And I also know that a lot of these attorneys don't work on cases like this very often. And so this is new. It's a new territory. Um, and so I am still waiting to try and collect that money. So I feel until whatever is out there that I can collect, I'll continue. Um, this case will continue on to be ongoing. Jose, I appreciate how generous you are um, with the attorneys involved, and I'm sure they did excellent work. Um, but it really does highlight how despite you know, really robust legislation, um, the amount of waiting that you've had to endure, even if there isn't ultimately a successful result um, and the incredible challenges. So I, I, I guess I'd like to turn to, um, we have a wonderful audience of lawyers who um, have likely worked within the civil and criminal system. So, um, you know, we'd love to hear from you. What advice or tips do you have for lawyers who 
are working with survivors who are at this moment navigating these systems, um, whether as plaintiffs, um, as witnesses, and I'll say some of them, unfortunately, as defendants, right? Um, because we know that often individuals are actually charged in cases. Um, what advice do you have? Absolutely. So I wrote down 10 tips. Um, that I believe that are helpful. Some of them might be a repeat of something that I've already said, so forgive me, um, but clearly they are still very, very important. Um, number one, I mentioned never assume that your client wants to be called a victim or a survivor. Um, I already explained a little more in detail, um, but it can be very uncomfortable when easily you can just call them by their name. Number two, I think it's important to try and get the the, the um, survivor therapy from the very beginning um, of the process. Emotionally, again, I was not prepared. Um, not only that, make sure that if you ask any of the experts to come forward and share um, their story, make sure that they're in a good place and that they have the help that they need before doing so. Um, because early on I was asked to share and I, I definitely was not in a good place and I was not ready to, to do that. I do want to mention, and, and this can be a little triggering for people, so forgive me, um, but after the criminal case, I went out and I partied and I partied hard and I wanted to celebrate and I was with friends and we had a great night, but one drink led to too many. And before I knew it, I was blackout. And thank God I ended up back in my hotel room. Um, and there was a moment of where I contemplated suicide. And a lot of that came from just being right back into this horrible place um, that I did not expect to be in. And so again, I wanna reiterate how important it is to really try and push to get your client to receive therapy or get any help through this process because they might not may not realize how damaging this can be later on for them. Um, number three, restitution. Um, restitution forms, I believe, need to begin when the lawyers first get in contact with the survivor. I should have had someone tell me to begin filling out the forms back in 2014 when I heard um, of the news that I would be testifying. Um, also, if you are unsure of how to fill out a restitution form, you should really learn immediately <laughs> and really learn how to um, fill out these forms properly. I also think it's important that um, the survivor has a, a lawyer present with them when filling out these forms because it can be really gruesome and hard for the survivor to come up with a number that they're quote unquote deserving of that'll help them become whole again, as we were explained. Um, number four, let the survivor know that during the rest restitution process, they should again, look at hiring a lawyer or help them find a pro bono lawyer to help them through that, through that process. Again, I'm still going through that process. It's really tough um, and gruesome and very, very long. Number five, take the survivor through a tour of the courtroom and in depth, explain to them what to expect. Always make sure that the survivor understands um, exactly what you're saying to them and reassure them that it's okay and normal if they do not understand what you're saying to them. Um, I think that that is kind of a given, but I think that we forget when these were the ABCs that you're learning in law school, 
where we've never even been there. So it's it's like we're we're learning to crawl at this moment. And so it's really, really important to kind of back it up a little bit and really kind of simplify it for them. Um, number six, go over the questions that are going to be asked during the testimony. Don't assume that they know how to answer. Um, I believe that if we had gone over the questions multiple times, I would have known exactly what to expect. Um, and I think that I would have answered the questions a lot better. Um, I've gone over my testimony and I've read what I said. And there are many moments I'm like, what am I talking about? Um, and I don't believe I said the, the right thing, but in that moment, it felt like that's what I was understanding um, in that moment, the question that was being asked. Um, number seven, survivors will not reach out. Um, I always felt like a burden. I felt like I was bothering people. Let them know that it is okay to reach out. And also be sure to reach out with every detail that you get. Even if you don't have any new information on the case, just remember that your client is probably sitting at home thinking about this nonstop. Like it is replaying in their mind over and over and over again. So even just to call them and say, I have no new information for you, but I'll let you know as soon as I do. I think that is very, very helpful. So just make sure you keep them informed of what's happening. Um, also, it kind of helps them make them feel like you didn't forget about them. Number eight, it's okay to be sensitive, um, but don't baby um, the survivor. You know, after all, we can handle the information. Um, we did survive something that is very, very horrific, um, but nothing is worse than feeling like someone's treating you like a baby. Um, I, I can say that. Not that anyone did that to me, but I've, I've seen it happen before. Um, number nine, just because you have a verdict or a judgment, this does not mean that the job is done. If there's money to collect, try your hardest to collect that money um, as soon as possible. Collecting is a huge part of moving forward for clients. We struggle holding jobs, paying bills, and many like myself still feel like we're still trying to survive in this world. So it is not a win if the client needs therapy or needs some form of security, but cannot because they're waiting for money um, that they are owed. This could also lead to more problems and it also keeps the client reliving their traumas and not able again to move forward. And number 10, I came up with three ways to help make a client trust you because I get this question a lot and this isn't the only way, um, but I think these are just helpful tips. A, validation is, is key. Um, tell them that what happened to them is not their fault and that what happened to them is true and that you believe everything that they're saying to you. I think that is so important. I think that immediately any survivor who's gone through trauma blames themselves and has that fear in the back of their head that they could get in trouble one day for what has happened. Um, B, help them identify what happened to them by explaining what human trafficking is. Um, explain how and why they're not in trouble and how they are actually, and I'm going to use the word victim, um, how they are a victim in this case um, and not the perpetrator. Um, I, I can tell you myself, I went and Googled what human trafficking meant. And it wasn't later until I realized that human trafficking isn't just sex trafficking, that there are other forms of trafficking. And so 
I tried, I tried for a long time to wrap my head around that and have a better understanding. Um, and the best way to explain that is it's a broad term for several different ways of, of being trafficked. C, um, treat them like they're human. Um, let them know that this is not easy and the legal process can be hard to understand. Um, but again, you are there to help them with any questions or confusion that they might have. So <laughs> I hope that was helpful. Jose, this is incredible, really incredibly helpful. Um, also, just I, I want to pull out, you know, you, you spoke very eloquently about the issue of belief and that so many encounter the legal system or attorneys and feel like they're, they aren't believed and, and gave us some really concrete tools um, for thinking about how to do that better as lawyers. Um, and also, it sounds like with information early and often, um, you know, just that we could do a better job sharing information with, with individuals early on in the criminal process or the civil process. So thanks for all of those incredible, incredible tips. And thanks for sharing your insights with us today. I know that there may be many people in the audience who have questions. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to Lavinia uh, Weisel and also Ashley Pelto to sort of share some of those questions for you and also um, invite our other distinguished experts uh, up, up onto the Zoom stage. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jose and Julie. I, I, we're, we're so incredibly grateful to both of you for taking the time and Jose, especially to you for sharing your expertise with us. I mean, this is an incredible learning opportunity um, for us thinking about um, you know, our work moving forward, hopefully um, being able to, to work with you know, more survivors and, and help them obtain the various forms of justice that you know, they deserve. Um, so we are you know, thrilled to, to open up to questions. Um, if folks want to put questions in the Q&A um, or in the chat, you know, we'll, we're happy to read them out. Um, it looks like Beth and um, hopefully Amy will be able to join us on, on the Zoom stage as well. Um, Hi Beth, good to see you. Hi, Jose. Thank you for that. That was super helpful. Thank you so much. Hey, Julie, how are you? Hey, everyone. Hi. Thank you for Good. joining us. Hi, Amy. Thank you for joining us today. Well, while we wait um, for questions from the audience, maybe maybe we can put Beth and Amy on the spot with a question <laughs> off the well, bat. We were texting a little bit, so we'll probably <laughs> proactively weigh in. Um, it, was, it was awesome to hear your story. Um, so thank you so much for sharing. And Beth and I were really uh, moved and texting each other about it. And I think one thing that might be helpful um, that we could share is um, the differences in the restitution process between the federal system that um, you're part of, Jose, and and the um, state system um, that Beth was part of. And I thought, um, one, I'll just speak briefly about the federal system and, and Beth talked about the difference, but one of the things I thought was really great in your list of things to do is um, to start gathering that restitution information early and often and putting it together. I thought that was a, a really important tip because as, um, as one of you mentioned in the federal system, restitution is mandatory. And so every time that I asked for it as a prosecutor in these cases, I got it and I got the full reward. Um, unfortunately, um, it, it, there was never any money to get. And that was something you mentioned, Jose, is, is one of the challenges. Um, but federally, if it's documented and if you have a reasonable request, uh, the judge will grant it. Um, but not everyone thinks to do that, thinks to gather together, thinks to ask for it, because as criminal prosecutors, we're often very focused on 
um, that piece of it and forget about the restitution piece. But if it's if it's in there, um, and if we have great people, the Australian office in Boston that remind people about it, so um, it's terrific. Um, if it's in there, it gets awarded. And then the collection process actually stands in front of any civil collection process. So if you have a criminal restitution reward, um, award granted, that will be granted even if somebody sues later, you know, you get it criminally first. That's the number one sort of rule in the system um, is that those awards get satisfied. Unfortunately, um, in, in many cases, there are not assets um, to, to get. Um, it's a little different, as I understand it, in the yeah. state case, right, Beth? That's right, and and you know I, I've shared this with Jose, and uh, actually a previous conversation as well. The state system of restitution, especially as it, it relates to uh, you know following up on human trafficking uh, convictions, um, it really is nowhere near the federal. It's not an automatic thing in the way that it is um, in the federal courts, and so it's really it is incumbent upon us as prosecutors to think about it as part of the criminal uh, case. And it's, it's typically, it does, typically does not happen. So we really need to do our job, um, you know, and, and extend what we consider is our job at, at, in terms of the prosecution. And Jose, I really valued some of um, our conversations specifically focusing on restitution because this is a way we can, I think, really work on improving state prosecutions and really trying to sort of bring more to bear, especially on behalf of victims and survivors and folks that um, come forward, you know, as you've highlighted, you know, the myriad of issues that surround that. And, and so thinking about the idea that restitution can help, you know, folks think about coming forward, we really need to do some work here on the state side, um, for sure. Um, I another question has come in, oh, sorry. Yeah, I would like to add something to that restitution process um, because there's actually there's a few things that I, I started thinking about within my own processes. Um, try not to assume that they don't have money because I was told several times that um, Gandhi did not have any assets or any money and actually he had quite a bit of many different assets. And so I actually took it upon myself to Google um, one of the homes that were auctioned off. And so I contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office and I'm like, hey, this, this home was auctioned off for X amount of money. I was like, where's my money at? That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was trying to have a better understanding of how this process works. And I really didn't know at the time. And so I was later, you know, explained that these are two separate cases. The civil case and the criminal case are, are completely separate. And I was a little disappointed to hear that, but I did know that this is what the restitution process was for and to claim as much of that money as possible. Um, so I always say, sometimes asking your client, do you know of any property? Do you know of any assets um, that we should be looking for? I think could be really, really helpful, not only for the case, but for them um, moving forward. Absolutely, absolutely. Federally, if if you know about it, which is, as you point out, Jose, an important thing, and there's a criminal restitution order, the federal government will attach um, the house. And so anybody who sells their house, it will um, fund directly into the criminal process, the restitution process. But, it, but you're right, separate. And we did have a, a question come in from the audience. Uh, Julie, I, I think you wanted to also add something. Is it on the restitution piece or do you yeah. want to address? 
No, I just wanted to thank both Beth and Amy, I think, who have been really proactive in thinking about these restitution issues. And, um, you know, that is one piece of the puzzle. But the other piece is sometimes just having Victim Rights Council um, for uh, survivors as they step forward who can help with those restitution requests early on. So I just wanted to note, note that given that many of you are in the audience looking to get involved. And that's another way that um, that can be helpful in, in assuring that restitution is ordered. So there, it looks like there are a few questions that have come in from the audience, the, the first of which is kind of who decides if a case is state or federal, kind of, you know, in the first instance. It's a good question. I, I would say um, many cases can be state or federal in many aspects of criminal law enforcement. And so deciding whether any particular case goes state or goes federal is often a mix of um, sometimes happenstance and sometimes um, you know, a, a thoughtful process and hopefully more the latter. And the way that we would try to do that is that um, when I was in AUSA, Beth and I would speak, other AUSAs speak with Beth, we talk with ADAs, we, the agents talk with each other um, and we try to be collaborative about figuring out where the best venue is for a case. Makes sense. Thank you. And I would just add that, uh, you know, the, the, one of the good things about our state statute is it actually captures a little bit more and it was designed to do so to be broader and to sort of be there to capture some of the cases that um, were not necessarily able to be um, captured uh, by the federal uh, TVPA. Okay, and we've had a couple more questions come in um, for Jose. The first one, um, uh, says, thank you for so generously sharing your story and your expertise. Um, it sounds like you have learned so much about the legal system. Do you have any interest in pursuing a career in the law? Um, actually, Mart I work uh, or I speak with Martina quite often, Vandenberg, and she's constantly pushing me. She's like, you know, <laughs> there could be something here for you. And I just, I've thought about it. Um, I don't think so. Um, I'm a very artistic person. Um, I like to, you know, express myself through art, music, and dance. And so um, ultimately my dream and my goal was that. But I think that speaking publicly is really something that I've learned to love. Um, I think that language is an art. Um, and so I think that I'm going to head more towards that direction. But I have thought about going back to school, actually. Um, and pursuing some form of writing or speaking um, career in the future. Fantastic. <laughs> I think you'll be well suited to any of that for sure. Um, another question that came in for you, Jose, is um, kind of kind of looking back, um, you know, the, the question is, were there any signs that people in your life could have used to identify um, that you were, you know, being trafficked or what was happening to you um, in your teen years? And, and are there any tools that can be used to kind of help identify, you know, what might be happening for a friend or a loved one? Absolutely. I think that identification is, can be tough. Um, I think that unless you have an actual interaction with someone that may be experiencing it, will you start to pick up some of the signs? Um, but there were several moments where many people could have stepped in from law enforcement to um, healthcare professionals, even to people within the community that I was living in 
Um, and not only within the trafficking situation, but I was also living with a much older man at the age of 15 early on when my parents kicked me out. And he was an educator um, for the same school district that I went to. And one of the student's parents stopped us at a Starbucks and asked him if I was his son. Like, even in this moment, you can see there's a, a huge age difference. But not only that, he was white and I'm Latino and we look completely different. And it was a moment where she kind of just looked at us like, what? And he says, no, this isn't my son, this is my friend. And so immediately it was a moment where someone easily could have stepped in. I don't recommend that someone actually steps in, but at least law enforcement is called or um, calling the hotline to see what you can do if, if you see or um, if you see something and what you should do. Um, there were moments where um, law enforcement was called um, to many of the homes that I had been in for um, domestic violence. There were many times where I had been treated a certain way and I'm not a quiet person and I'm gonna voice how I feel and I'm gonna do it loudly and I did. And thank God law enforcement was called, but when law enforcement arrived, they didn't question me at all. They didn't ask for my ID to figure out my age. There was no form of, you know, what's, what's really going on here. Um, I also think that there was a, there's an interesting part of this. When my parents initially kicked me out, I was afraid of being considered a runaway. And I knew that if I were considered a runaway, I would be in trouble. And so, I immediately contacted an attorney and I asked the attorney, if my parents kicked me out, would I be considered a runaway? And he said, well, no, not if they kick you out and if you live within a certain um, radius away from your parents. And he said, the only thing that's keeping you from not getting in trouble is you need to be enrolled into school. And so, and he said, but I know a way that you can get enrolled into school. And he said, claim yourself homeless at a homeless shelter. They'll provide you with a legal guardian that will then enroll you into high school. And I did that and it worked. Um, unfortunately, the legal guardian that signed me into high school did not want to look into my situation or try to see why I was now homeless um, and in this situation. So there were many moments where many people could have stepped in. At times I question, is it because of my sexuality? Is it because of my gender, my race? I don't, I, I guess I'll never really know. Um, but I think it's many different reasons, um, with many different people for why they didn't step in. And so it's unfortunate, but, um, I'm here to, share the story. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for, for being here to share the story. And I think you bring up a really um, good point too, which is that if, you know, someone is in a situation where they see some of these red flags, like the parent in the Starbucks, you know, um, what, what is sort of the, the right, the right thing to do or what, what's a recommended next step. And it, it, it sounds like, you know, you touched on the idea, you know, confronting the Gandhi and the Starbucks might not have been for, I imagine, a host of reasons, the appropriate response, but 
um, calling the national, you know, hotline, calling law enforcement, calling the school district, you know, something like that, it sounds like might have been an intervention that um, in your circumstance, you know, would have been helpful. Is that right? Absolutely. Yep. I do know that the, the trafficking hotline is often, um, you know, open and, you know, is willing to and, and can provide very useful guidance for folks if there's ever a circumstance where, um, whether it's like an individual, you know, person circumstance or um, a, a business that, you know, kind of raises some red flags, um, calling the hotline can be a useful, a useful way to approach that. Um, and I don't know, Beth or Amy, kind of from a law enforcement perspective, you know, if someone has a concern in, in their local community, what, what, what recommendations you would have in that circumstance? Um, I would think, Livinia, I would say a couple of things. If there's any concern uh, around someone um, who's uh, under 18 uh, and you have sort of a, a question, I would follow that question and file a 51A regarding concerns. Um, uh, you know, if you're in the right position to do that, then that really needs to be done um, on concerns of potential exploitation or human trafficking of a, of a minor. Um, and then I would just say, you know, calling local police, I think in general, um, when there's a concern, should be, you know, reiterated to folks if there's something that you see that is concerning, um, you know, that's, you know, we would encourage folks to do that. Um, you know, we've been really working hard, especially in the last couple of years to get police really sort of tuned in in a better and more focused way on exploitation and trafficking um, here in the state. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that I've, I've worked myself in the AG's offices to work closely with, um, the Municipal Police Training Committee, just to really make sure that folks, police officers across the state are really understanding, uh, not just sort of like, you know, what, you know, what indicators and, and signs and signals may be, but sort of to think about trauma and how that impacts individuals and how that can impact a sort of first uh, interaction and, and how to be responsive and appropriate in those um, situations as well. So um, I, I think, reaching out to police um, should be can, uh, encouraged. And, and I think, you know, Jose's, uh, you know, suggestion is right on. I, I endorse that. If you, if you have a suspicion, if there's a gut instinct, figure out how to follow through that, not confronting the individual at the, you know, at the Starbucks, but, you know, following that, um, you know, instinct by way of, if it's an emergency calling police, but if there's an indicator to follow up with the National Human Trafficking um, resource center and hotline with, you know, we, we follow those leads all the time. They're constantly, um, you know, in front of law enforcement and are followed up on. And so I think, um, yeah, I would, I would sort of reiterate some of those things that have already been said and, and add what I would have added there. So. Well, great. And shout out to the AG's office for really increasing the training and awareness in this space with the, um, you know, statewide trainings that, that you, you do, Beth. And, um, that have been out in the past because I think, um, and you know, it's, it's an iterative process. Sometimes people aren't ready the first time someone tries to intervene, but having repeated attempts, so maybe you catch someone when they are ready to, you know, to speak and to be open. And, and then people um, like yourself, Jose, who are out there really giving an experience in a firsthand way that really changes people's perceptions. Um, back to what you started with, you know, people's perceptions need to be changed in this space to be able to recognize the signs um, and reach out to people and help them. And, um, you know, it's, it's been a slow process, but I think it's getting better. 
um, by things just like this. So I'm optimistic. Absolutely. Um, I kind of, this kind of made me think a little bit about um, something that I share quite often and it is resources. Anytime you are in contact with a survivor or you have a client that is a survivor, um, I think it should be immediate that you start looking within your community to find those resources that could be helpful at any moment for your client. Because I mean, whether it's mental health or maybe they need clothes or, or something, there's so many resources out there. And as of recently, I just figured out how many even here in Boston that really are out there. Um, and if there's not enough, then there's at least a resource that can connect you to another resource that you need. And so it's really important that you find out that, that information immediately in case there is an emergency or something that could be helpful. I'm giving a moment to see if any more questions from the audience kind of come in. We've, we've covered, I think, a lot of really useful ground. Um, and Jose, your, your 10 tips for attorneys are, are fantastic. I, I kind of want to frame them, you know, <laughs> so I can always, always be reminded. Um, uh, I wonder, Beth and Amy, given your kind of experience, um, if, there, if there's an 11th or 12th tip you would add to the list for attorneys kind of um, working with with folks who might have experienced um, trafficking in some way. I don't think I can improve on Jose. I wrote it all down. <laughs> it was all Fair really enough. good and really thoughtful. Um, so thank you for sharing. I too will frame. <laughs> I do wanna mention um, a question that I get quite often is, um, how can we end human trafficking? And it's such a, an interesting question, but I get it all the time. And what I believe is that we cannot end human trafficking until we as a nation begin healing ourselves. Um, and what that means is with hate in our heart, um, injustices will continue to happen over and over and over again. And so once we do the work and we get the healing that we need, I think that we'll start to see a lot of progress, um, but an end to a lot of these atrocious um, situation. And so I always share that with people. It's just like, do the work on yourself so that you can help others, you know, get through whatever it is that they're going through. So if I could give any advice to how we're going to end it, I think that's, that's huge. So Jose, there, there's a couple other questions that came in. I don't know if you're able to see them. I wanted to check. Um, if you were comfortable answering the top question before we posed it to you. Yeah, I can, I can answer that question. That's totally okay. fine. Okay. Um, so, yeah. I don't know if you wanted to read it first. Yeah, I'll go ahead and read it out. Yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, Lola is asking if you're comfortable, can you share how your relationship is with your family now? Do they understand what has happened to you? Um, so this is an evolving process. <laughs> um, I believe that I've done a lot of work on myself and I've come a long way. Um, there were moments where I was in a victimized state where I blamed everybody for everything that I went through and I lashed out on a lot of people. And those people specifically were 
my parents and my family saying, you know, how could you do something like this to me? Um, but once I started to do the work, I started to have an understanding of everything that happened to me and why. And that understanding is so key in a healing process because without that, you're going to continue to search for answers and reasons. And once I was able to really analyze my story and what I had gone through, I was then able as an adult to look at my situation and, and not necessarily forgive, but to let it go. And I think it's so much more important that I have a relationship with my parents when they are ready and when they've done the work. Um, unfortunately, right now, I don't feel that my parents are in a place to really have a relationship with me. And when I say that, it's, it's a relationship with no judgment. And so I think that they have a, some healing to do and some work to do on themselves. But when they're ready, my door is always open and my phone is always available for a phone conversation. So. Yeah, thank you for that, Jose. And um, it looks like we do have one other question from Anna. Uh, it says, you talked about tips for attorneys. Do you have any suggestions for the courts on how to make the court environment better for those that are testifying? Absolutely. Um, so this is a little bit of a tough question, um, but I think that one, there were many moments where the judge said things, um, and I, I believe we, we talked a little bit about this early on, but the judge mentioned things about Gandhi in reference to hope. And while we were in the courtroom hearing that, it made us feel like, what about us? What about the hope that we need to move forward with our lives? Um, and so to hear that, it really kind of weighed on a lot of us and made us think that this wasn't gonna be in our favor. Um, I also think there was a moment where he, where they allowed him to address us and point at us in the courtroom, which I don't believe is fair and I didn't believe was appropriate. Um, it was a very emotional moment and it was a moment that should, just should not have happened in my eyes. I think that's one, um, I think just really understanding trauma in general can help with so many people involved in any, any case um, and being trauma informed and how to handle and be with clients. And again, language is, is very, very important. So as long as everyone in that courtroom has some form of knowledge on trauma and what it can do and, and the language that needs to be said, I think will make a huge difference in a courtroom setting. All right, so doesn't look like we have any other questions coming in. Um, one other question, actually, I got kind of offline, um, but, and maybe this is a good, um, you know, as we wrap up, Jose, you, you've shared, you know, so much um, insight today. And I think a question um, is, you know, how can we help to amplify your work and your voice, um, you know, in this movement and, and moving forward? Absolutely. Um, I don't, I'm going to change the question a little bit. Sure. And I'm gonna make it, how can we amplify the voices of survivors in this movement? Um, I think for a long time, even within the movement, I felt like I was silenced. And not only that, when we 
look at a lot of the survivors that are on the forefront of this movement, a lot of them are white, straight females. And so when we see that, it really kind of takes away from my story and it makes me feel like as though my story isn't valid. I mean, we can easily look at just the statistics when it comes to males versus females and how we assume that that is an accurate number. Um, but when people read that or people within the communities read that, they believe that that is what it is and it's nothing else. And so I think that it's important that we really put um, diverse survivors on the forefront and really be inclusive um, and share all survivor stories because this isn't just one way. There isn't just one way that this happens. It happens so many different ways. And so what I always ask is to offer equal opportunity to anyone and everyone who has a story to share. Um, I think that that would be the best. <laughs> Julie, I saw you raised your hand. Did you have a question? I think it was very similar to the one Lavinia shared, and I just want to—I just want to also just echo our thanks. Um, I, I really think um, Jose that, that the tips you've provided will be helpful and will continue to be helpful. So thank you. Absolutely, I'm truly honored to be here today, and I—I'm just really, really thankful for this opportunity. So this in itself, you've already amplified my voice. So thank you. Thank you. Well, Jose, thank you again so much for taking the time and, and sharing and your, your candor and your courage, um, you know, and, and your wonderful tips and experience and insight. We're, we're so grateful. Um, as we wrap up, unless any other question kind of trickles in, um, we will, uh, Ashley, maybe we'll share um, a slide with our contact information so that if folks are interested in either learning more about the subcommittee or more about um, Jose, I think there's also some social media, um, uh, what, what do I call it? Like handles there, you know? So if folks want to start to follow Jose, I think that is the way to do it. Um, and, um, to, to, to find out more, you know, like I said, at the beginning, um, we're, we're thrilled that so many of you have joined us for the program today. Um, please feel free to reach out to, to me and Ashley, if you're interested in learning more about the subcommittee or, um, you know, follow Jose on social media um, and, and, you know, you can reach out to Julie as well. So um, thank you everyone again so much, so much for joining us and a special thanks to Amy and Beth too for taking the time and sharing their insight um, and experience here in Massachusetts. It's so, so valuable that context. Um, great. And a big thank you again to the BBA for providing the platform and and making this all um, happen. We're really grateful for the support. Hi, yes, thank you all so much for attending and have a great afternoon. Thank you to our panelists. Thank you, Jose. Thank you as well to the Delivery Legal Services section, specifically the Human Trafficking Subcommittee. And again, have a great afternoon and um, feel free if you'd like to access this recording, it will be on the BBA's website with the Web Online Library. And have a great afternoon. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye bye. Thank you.